I'm going to warn you ahead of time that we're going to talk about idolatry this morning. Problem is, if you're anything like me, I spent years in church growing up and going to church and even as a young man and every time I heard the pastor say the word idolatry it didn't connect because my immediate reaction is I don't worship idols and I always knew where the pastor was going too he was going to talk about how our cars are idols and how our homes are our idols and all this stuff and I'm like you know it's not a problem for me and so it's not a teaching for me well this morning is a teaching for us We are going to talk about idolatry, but there is application that goes far deeper in Psalm 115 than perhaps you've heard before. I know deeper than what I have considered before. As to what idolatry truly is and how it is still being played out today, and how in so many of our lives we are idolatrous without even recognizing it. This will not be negative. We'll end on a positive note. But I just want you to know ahead of time, please don't turn off. Listen closely, because I believe this is for all of us. Psalm 115, beginning in verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. Feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He's their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord. The small together with the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth He has given to the sons of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise the Lord. Or as you know, hallelujah. Now, Father, as we open up Psalm 115 this morning, Lord, we just pray Your blessing on the teaching of Your Word. I pray, Father, that the only words that will be heard this morning and taken to heart are the words that are spoke by Your Spirit. And anything else I say that has no application, that it would just be forgotten, that it would not penetrate. Only Your words, Father, and only the truth, and only the grace of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, teach us. We begin a new year. We, we start fresh and new again with You as we know we can every day. And we thank You, Holy Spirit, for loving us so much and for changing our hearts and our lives. One last thing, Father, I just pray if there's anyone here this morning who has not received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day. Teach us now, Spirit, in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. So how was it? 2010. (laughs) Was it a good year? How many of you on the verge of 2011 were thinking, yes, Time for a new one. 
I'm ready to go forward and ready to leave behind where I've been. It's interesting, different, different ones of us have different perspectives. Some have had a fantastic year. They could probably all fit right here on the stage. But most have, have struggled or have difficult times. And we have this thing about the new year where you know, it, it opens up that thing in humanity, our sense of hope. You know, that we can actually do a little better this next year. Or things might be different this next year. And so we always look at it with hope. But what interests me at this turn of the year is the tradition that we see that goes on around us. Family traditions, sure. I mean, my, my family, my dad, always had to have black-eyed peas on New Year's Day. Why? I have no idea. It was the only time all year long we ate black-eyed peas. But we ate them on New Year's Day. The traditions and celebrations, though, of people around the world are, are fascinating. I don't know if you've looked at this. It was talked about recently that the Japanese release silver balloons into the sky. And they put dreams and wishes and hopes on little pieces of paper inside the balloons. And then they let them go aloft, off into the atmosphere, where you know they're all going to be answered. In Madrid, 50,000 people gathered in Puerto del Sol Square to enjoy what's calling Las Uvas. Las Uvas, which means the grapes. What they do is they wear brightly colored wigs, not sure what the relevance is of that, and they would take these, these bunches of grapes, 12 grapes in all, and as the bell tolled, for each tolling of the bell at midnight, you had to eat a grape. But you had to chew and swallow it completely. And you have to do this 12 times, and if you can do it all 12 times by the final bell toll and swallow that last grape, you're going to have good luck in the new year. Not to mention dietary problems. (laughs) Beautician Anita Vargas said the following, I'm here to make my wishes for the new year. If you eat, am I saying it like you think Anita would say it? If you eat your grapes, your wishes will come true. (laughs) When you wish upon a star... Nothing happens! Okay? It doesn't work. The Dutch, they celebrate by eating deep-fried dough balls covered in powdered sugar. Now, that's my kind of tradition. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anybody bring any this morning? The Danish people, they love to jump off chairs. Symbolic of leaping into the new year. Which is something Naomi does every day of the week in my house. But here's the weirdest tradition of all. Upwards of one million people gathered in Times Square on New Year's Eve to watch a giant illuminated ball drop. I don't get it. I mean, we watched the Space Needle fireworks. That was cool. But I I just, I don't understand. That thing is 12 feet high. And it's a huge, you know, it's made of a Waterford crystal. This ball. Tons of money, tons of work and energy and effort go into this thing as it's dropping, you know, and everybody's just getting so excited and it gets to the bottom and you know what happens? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) I mean, at least have the ball explode or something. That would be cool. Weird stuff. But how do you prepare for a new year? Psalm 15 holds the key. It's an important study. As I shared before, it's a contrast between idle hands and divine intentions. Now, idle, you can spell either way. I-D-O-L, like idolatry. You can also spell it I-D-L-E. It works both ways. Idle hands. It works as something useless, senseless, and futile. 
And the contrast in this psalm is between the useless and the futile and that which is effective and eternal and everlasting. What really causes blessing versus what we think sometimes would bring blessing in our lives. Now, rabbinical scholars are not in agreement as to who wrote Psalm 115. You look through all of them, you get several different opinions. Three of them stand out. Some say it was Moses. And it had to be Moses because look at what it talks about. It talks about idol worship and as the children of Israel left Egypt, they left all of that idolatry. And by the way, I don't know if you realize this, but Exodus 7-11, through 11, the describing the detailing of the ten plagues that God sent, those were not random acts of, of attack on the part of God. He wasn't just sitting up there saying, frogs, that would be good. You know? Dead livestock. Boom. You know? Hey, how about some hail? It wasn't like that. Every single one of the ten plagues, God specifically chose to take on a god, an idol of Egypt. So as the Egyptian people saw these plagues happening, they realized their own gods were insufficient. The God of Israel was more powerful. And so looking at all that idolatry taken on and taken out by God, some say Moses wrote Psalm 115. Others believe it was Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, who had that great victory. He's there in Jerusalem, and the Edomites and the Ammonites and Moabites are all gathered together. I think the flashlights were there as well, maybe the termites. And they were all together in the Valley of Barakah. And in that valley, they're approaching to dominate and destroy Israel, and Jehoshaphat doesn't know what to do. He and the people begin praying to the Lord and asking for help. What do we do? And God says, don't worry about it. I got it. So Jehoshaphat does something interesting in the annals of military history. He sends for his first wave of defense the worship team. He does. He sends the Levitical priests out singing songs of worship first. And as they come out of Jerusalem singing those worship songs, the Moabites, Ammonites, and Edomites all freak out, turn on each other, and kill each other in the Valley of Barakah. And as the Israelites come over the plain looking down on this mass carnage of corpses, no one living, they realize the power of the one true God over all the gods of the surrounding nations. So some say it was Jehoshaphat. I like that. Send in the worship team first. Send in the worship. You want to go on the offensive? You want defense in your life? Worship first. Fight later. But if you begin with worship, you ascribe all power to God. Jehoshaphat did that. The third option for a writer of Psalm 115 is Ezra. Ezra, as he led the exiled Israelites out of Babylon and back to the land, out of Babylon, the center of idolatry in the world. More idols in Babylon than in any other place. And Ezra led them out. And so, again, some Jewish scholars say it must have been Ezra. So which one was it? Moses? Jehoshaphat? Ezra? It doesn't really matter because they all dealt with the same issue. They all learned the same thing. They learned, gang, that putting confidence in human strength, human ingenuity, human creativity, even human productivity, is the most stupid thing a person can do. And here's where we come to idolatry. The idolatry that is rampant in the world today is not so much the stuff that we own as much as it is the work of our hands. The things that we do that we think will save us. Our hard work, our effort, our energy. Now, I'm not saying to be lazy, and I'm not saying just kick back and just, okay, I'm going to sit in my armchair and let God do His thing. It's not the point. The point is the emphasis, the focus, the trust that we put on our hard work, on the things that we can accomplish, on the money we can tuck away, on the jobs that we can do. 
And we work and we work and we work and it doesn't get us the blessing that we keep thinking it's going to get us. And every year turns and we're right back in the same place. And the Bible calls it idolatry. Keep your finger there in 115 and go over to Isaiah 44. It's just two books to the right. Isaiah 44. I'm going to read from verse 6 down to verse 20. Just follow along. It's a little bit of reading, but you've got to hear how God describes the whole mentality that goes into idol worship back then, but also today. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I like that verse. Note that again. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and the Redeemer. Father and Son. Talking about God the Father and Jesus the Son. He says, I am the first and I am the last, which Jesus will quote, repeat in Revelation. I am the first and I am the last. There is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. And let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. No other rock. Those stone idols that might be carved out of rock. There's no rock that can do a thing for you. There is none, he says. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile. And their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or to know so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a God or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame. For the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and he becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass. He makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself. He takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir, and the rain makes it grow. And then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself, and he also makes fire to make bread, and he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before you. You see what God's doing? He's saying, this is so stupid. Your idols are made of the same stuff that you cook over. You know, you use it for, for warmth in your homes. You burn it, but you're standing it up in your house and you're worshiping it. It's foolishness. Verse 16, half of it he burns in the fire. And over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it, he makes into a god his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there understanding or knowledge to say, I have burned half of it in the fire, and I've also baked bread over its coals, and I roast meat and eat it. 
And then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. And he cannot deliver himself, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Bottom line, idolatry is just plain lame. But we engage in it all the time. Oh, you may not fashion something out of wood or stone or iron and and bow down before it in your house. That may not be going on. I hope it's not going on. And yet there is an aspect of idolatry in our lives, which is why the Lord continually calls us back to a life completely centered on Him. Let's understand this together. Psalm 115, verse 1. The psalmist begins and he says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness. Because of your truth. Because of your loving kindness and truth. I'm going to point it out again. I know I've said this over and over. We've been going through the Psalms. And every time we see those two words together. Loving kindness and truth. My friends, it talks about Jesus. John 1.17, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Okay, Rick, we get it. You know, loving kindness and truth, grace and truth, it's Jesus. Okay, can we move on from that? Yeah, yeah, I I know you like to point that out. Listen, John said grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. They're understood through Jesus Christ alone, which means outside of Jesus, grace and truth are concepts that we cannot grasp. We don't get it without Jesus. Without Jesus, there's no realization. We can't piece it together. Life doesn't make sense. A veil stays over the eyes of every person who walks outside of faith in Jesus. And it's why if you happen to be here this morning and not be a believer, perhaps you're not a Christian or you don't claim to walk with people of faith or Christians, it's why it's not working. It's why for you, you're in a place where, you know, try as you might, you can't make sense of it all. And you never will. Because grace and truth are realized in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me ask this question. Who do you put your faith in? Who do you trust? Now, most Christians would immediately say, Jesus. I trust Jesus. Well, do you really? I mean, is that evident in the way we spend our time and our energy throughout the week? I trust Jesus. Do you? Do you spend more time with Him or with the TV? Now, how much energy goes into that box that's sucking the life out of all of our brains? How much time and energy and focus do you put into your relationship with Jesus Christ? When we say we trust Him, But do we? Idolatry is simply passion directed toward anything, listen, anything, listen, made by human hands. That's idolatry. It's not, oh, I've got a big car and it's nice and brand new, so I'm worshiping an idol. No. Here's the issue. Anything made by human hands that we put our focus and interest and and reliance on is idolatry. It's the work of human hands. Which is interesting because John, in 1 John chapter 5, he closes out this magnificent letter talking about the wonders and glories of Jesus. And he says, we know the Son of God has come and He's given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He says, this is true God and eternal life. And I love that. And I would have stopped the letter right there because it's such a powerful statement. This is true God. And eternal life. 
And just let that hang in the air, John. But he adds something. He says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Why? Because anything that takes the focus off of true God and eternal life, who is Jesus Christ, anything else is idolatry. And John says, don't go there. Guard yourself against that. You want to stay focused on Jesus, true God, and eternal life. And it's why the nations of the world still don't get it. Look at verse 2. Why should the nations say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And I like that. God does whatever He pleases. What does that mean? It, It means He does His will. It means He accomplishes His purpose. He will accomplish all of His purposes in this world, whether we're on board or not. His will will be done. Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. Which is why we sing, What pleases you? I want to do, Lord, what pleases you. Because everything that pleases God, He will accomplish. Isaiah 46, verse 10. My purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And here's an interesting verse. Daniel 4, 35. The verse is interesting because of who speaks this verse. He says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? You know who said that? Nebuchadnezzar, king of idolatrous Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, king of the capital of idolatry, has an interesting experience where he goes absolutely berserk. He goes nuts. His hair is long and scraggly. His fingernails grown out. He eats grass like a cow. But when he finally comes back to his senses, that's his reaction. God is God. He does what He pleases. And I don't know, but it's possible Nebuchadnezzar got saved that day. You might see Nebi in heaven, which would be a remarkable thing. Why do we question God at all? who's going to accomplish His will and His purposes, He's going to do whatever He has set out to do. Why do we question Him? And we do all the time. I hear from people, why is God doing it this way? Why is God doing it that way? You know what the better question is? Father, how might I be of service to Your will? I'm so interested in my will and in the things that I'm all about and the work of my hands. Idolatry. Dear children, John says, guard yourself from idols. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 says, In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. And when it's all said and done, the only thing that we do that will last, the only work of our hands that will have any eternal value is what we do for the Lord. Everything else is going to be gone kind of makes you reevaluate what you're spending so much energy and effort on. Because it's all going to burn. It's not going to remain. Only that which you do for the Lord. In 1 John 5.14, John says, This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. The eternal will of God versus the idle work of the hands of man. That's the contrast we see here. There are two primary problems that stand out here as to the idle work of man's hands. Number one, the work of man's hands cannot deliver you. The work of your hands cannot deliver you. Verse 4, he says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. 
They have mouths they cannot speak, eyes they cannot see, ears they cannot hear, noses but they cannot smell. They have hands they cannot feel, they have feet but they cannot walk, they cannot make a sound with their throat. Anything, the work of our hands cannot deliver us. And yet we try so hard to protect ourselves and and steal ourselves for the world around us. Thinking if I work a little harder, if I gain a little more, if I stash more stuff, then I can protect myself. The work of your hands cannot deliver you any more than a stupid idol that sits there and does nothing, like in Wat Tramit. Wat Tramit, the temple of the Golden Buddha in Bangkok, Thailand. This Golden Buddha, perhaps you've seen pictures of it, it sits at over 10 feet high. It is the world's largest solid gold Buddha weighing more than five tons. And it does nothing. It's like the ball that drops on New Year's Eve. It gets there and it sits there. It it does absolutely nothing. I think this is interesting. SacredDestinations.com has this to say about the Golden Buddha. This powerful image has such a bright, reflective surface that its edges seem to disappear. And it gleams with such richness and purity that even the most jaded are inspired by its strength and power. Strength and power? The Adelots are moving uh, into a new house this, this weekend, actually. They've been going at it. And that golden Buddha hasn't lifted a finger. <laughs> Neither have I. But you know, it's the back problems that work out. It's not there. It can't do anything. It cannot protect the people of Thailand. It won't lift a finger to help anybody. There's no strength there. It just sits there. And power? Are you kidding me? Strength and power. As you look at this thing. Come on, it's a statue. There's no power there. It generates nothing but a false sense of awe, just like the rest of the works of man's hands. Nothing but false security in the things that we think we can accomplish. My, my parents actually saw this golden Buddha on a recent Eastern cruise that they went on as they burn away my inheritance, but that's another story. <laughs> a picture of them taken with the golden Buddha. I'm like, Mom and Dad, what are you thinking? But the picture is actually not in front of the Buddha, they're behind it. So they're standing there with big smiles on their face, and and behind them is the backside of the golden Buddha. And they said on the bottom of this picture that they sent out with their Christmas cards, we got your back. And they thought it was real funny. And I had time to evaluate upon receiving that where I got my sense of humor. Just need to apologize to all of you. But Judges chapter 10 verse 13, dealing with this whole issue of idols, the people of Israel were caught up in it for years and years. The book of Judges is all about this circle they go through of crying out to God for help, for deliverance, and He delivers them, and they come back to Him, and then they start to go after idols again, and then they fall apart, and then they get conquered, and they cry out for deliverance, and around and around it goes through the entire book of Judges. And in the middle, Judges chapter 10, God says, You have forsaken Me and served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. And listen, the time of your distress will come. In fact, I hate to tell you this, but this may be the year that is the most distressing year of your entire life so far. It may be 2011. You could be sitting here a year from now going, man, I'm glad that year's over. 
I'm so glad we're done with that. There are those of us in here right now who are about to face the most distressing year of our lives and we don't even know it. And I'm not saying that to discourage anybody because I believe that you can be blessed in distress. It can be the worst year by human accounting of any that you've ever faced and yet it could be the best if you walk it out in faith in Jesus Christ. If you will walk it out trusting Him, it can be the most marvelous year. You can be blessed in distress or you can be blasted in distress. And Jesus says, you know what the difference is when distress comes? You know how you are blessed versus destroyed? You trust Me. You trust My Word. He said, everyone who hears these words of Mine and acts on them are like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house, yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. By contrast, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his hand on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And the difference of the work of the two men's hands was one was the work of the Lord, and the other was the work of the man. And if we are engaged in the work of Jesus Christ, if we're putting our hands to His work, what we build will stand in any distress, in any storm, under any attack. But if we're working on ourselves and the work of our hands and trusting in that, if our reliance is there, it's idle work and you're not going to be delivered. When the storms come, and they will come, the work of our hands cannot deliver us. But the second thing about idolatry, gang, is the work of man's hands will ultimately digest us. Not only can they not deliver us, but they will digest us. Verse 8, those who, become, who make them will become like them. And that should cause a chill to run up our spines. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Yesterday they were running the Twilight Zone marathon. And uh, Hannah was watching a few of the episodes. And there was one that I remember from a kid when I was little because it freaked me out. It's one about the ventriloquist. He's got the dummy, you know, and he's up there and he's, he's pretty good, but he, he goes back into the dressing room and the dummy, you know, is sitting on the couch, just sitting there, and all of a sudden goes, <laughs> starts talking to him, you know, and he's, ah! and then his manager comes in and his manager thinks he's going nuts, and he says, no, I'm not going nuts, the dummy really talks, and, and then he tries to destroy the dummy, and he destroys, it's, it's a ing- very, very upsetting and disturbing show. <laughs> the way it ends is amazing. Because it ends with the curtains and he's standing backstage and you're behind, you're kind of looking from behind the ventriloquist and he's got the dummy and he walks out there and sits down and starts talking and the camera slowly pans around him and suddenly you realize the ventriloquist's face is the dummy. And the dummy's face looks like the ventriloquist. They've changed. And that's what happens when we put our emphasis on the work of our hands is we become like what we think we're achieving. That's why you see, and I know it's cliche, but you see these, these, these men, these women who have great corporate dreams and it all comes crashing down. Or to get to the top, they lose everything. Uh, what's his name, uh, the Ponzi scheme guy? Madoff. Madoff, whose son committed suicide. And now he's sitting in prison, having made all kinds of money, the work of his hands, and his son commits suicide and he's in prison dealing with that. The work of our hands cannot deliver us and will ultimately digest us. It's kind of like the Borg. Resistance is futile, you know? You Star Trek fans, we will assimilate you, and that's what happens. Idolatry is assimilation because whatever you worship, you will become. Or you will become like. Whatever you worship, you will become like. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon 
was all about assimilation. That's how he did it. It's a fascinating study. In fact, if you study through the book of Daniel and how it begins, they take all the young bucks of Israel when they capture them and they bring them into Babylon. All the strapping young men that have great potential and they're smart kids. And he first changes all their names. And after changing their names, he starts to feed them on the food of the palace, the best and choicest of his food and his wine. He starts teaching them his literature. He starts teaching them the language. And he assimilates these kids that eventually they can serve in his government. To what end? Ultimately, to worship the great statue Nebuchadnezzar himself sets up. Only, you remember, three guys didn't do it. Three guys refused to assimilate. Three guys guarded themselves against the idolatry of Babylon. You remember their names? Yeah, those are their Babylonian names. They have Hebrew names. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and the fourth guy, Daniel. And all three, all four of these guys ultimately were delivered. Three thrown into the fiery furnace and were delivered. One thrown into a lion's den and was delivered because they did not cave to idolatry. Because they were about the work of the hands of the Father, not the work of the hands of man. Okay, and grace and truth as realized through Jesus Christ, will always deliver. Will deliver you from the vanity of life to victory in Christ, from futility to faith. And so the question again is, who do we worship and who do we idolize? Be careful. The one you idolize, the thing you worship, you will become like. But there's good news with that, because the more you worship Jesus, the more you become like Jesus. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. We will become like the one we worship. We will be Christ-like. Now, watch this. Three groups are called to trust the Lord. The first one is Israel. Oh, Israel, verse 9. Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Did you hear about the major find in Israel this last week? They have two major fields, uh, natural gas fields, out off the coast. One of them called Tamar and the other one called Leviathan. Cool names. They discovered in Leviathan 16 trillion cubic feet of natural gas. Enough to fuel all of this, the country of Israel for a hundred years. Just discovered. Amazing find. And of course, suddenly Hezbollah wants to negotiate. God's still the help and shield of Israel. Even in faithlessness, even in this time of disbelief and secular living in the country of Israel, God is still protecting His people and seeing them through, and He's going to get them through to the very end. You watch and see. So, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. The second group, O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord, verse 10. He is their help and their shield. House of Aaron. That's interesting that the high priestly line is indicated here. And and you've got to ask why. Why are they singled out out of all the other tribes of Israel? Gang, listen. It's because I believe even those or those who are nearest to Him must trust Him more. It's not that the closer you get to God, the less you need to have faith. Actually, the closer you get to the Lord, the more faith it requires. The more we're called to trust Him. This is an an encouragement to a people, the house of Aaron, the high priest, who would be considered by Israel closest to the Lord. And what the psalmist is saying, hey, you priests, trust Him more. 
Trust Him more even than you do. John wrote to a group of Christians, and he said in 1 John 5.13, These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. I know you already believe. I want you to go a step further. You believe. Now know that you're saved. You know that you're saved. Now walk in faith. You walk in faith. Walk in deeper faith. And I know here at the bridge there are a number of you who just keep saying, I want more of Jesus. I want more of the Lord. Trust Him. Trust Him. For the more you have of Him, the more you will need Him. It's it's an amazing thing. You know, when you're you're young and growing up going to church like I was, you kind of assume that you're going to hit a point where it's all cool. You know, I'll get to that place and, and I will have arrived as a Christian adult and everything will be fine. I know more about the Lord than I've ever known in my life. I love Him more passionately. I care more about the relationship that I have with Him than I ever have before. But I'll tell you what, I need more faith today than I did when I was 10 years old. Because the closer you get to Him, the more you're called upon to trust Him. There's something else that happens here too. As you draw nearer to the Lord and trust in faith, as you deny the work of your hands and trust more and more in the work of His hands, it becomes even more vital that you trust Him because more people are watching. The second you become outspoken about your faith, people want to see. And people will ask and people will judge. James says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that such will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. Let me give you a personal example, and I'm not paranoid, I'm really not. But this is just a reality that I have to live with. Most of you are going to walk out of here today pretty much unscathed. You know, uh, No one's going to go out to lunch and debate what it was that you said. Or talk about, or disagree with, or, or take issue with. I, however, will be talked about. Maybe not me personally, but what I'm teaching right now is going to be talked about, at least by some, I hope. I know that that goes on. And I know, I know, because it comes back to me. I think it doesn't. I hear everything. It comes back to me. And I know those times when people go home and go, he was so far out in left field today, I just couldn't. I get get it. I hear it. Let not many of you be teachers. So I'm tendering my resignation for 2011. Why, Rick, do you keep teaching then? I'll tell you why. I can't help it. I have to. I would drive myself and my entire family completely nuts if I stopped teaching. I understand. I get what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9. He said, If I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it in. I cannot endure it. Because I want to be in the Word, and I want to be teaching. I can't hold it in. And this is not about me, gang. Some would say, hey, if that's the deal, I'm just going to stand at a safe distance from God. I'll go to church, you know, I'll read my Bible in private, but I won't get so close or be so outspoken so as to be judged by other people. The problem with that mentality is, where do you draw the line? You know, how, how far is far enough with the Lord? I mean, how, how close is close enough? And if you're really going to play that game and say, I'm going to do my thing, I'm going to live on the work of my hands, and I'm going to, I know they're, I, I believe in God. I'll give Him this much. Is that enough? The truth is, gang... With that mentality, as if your relationship with Jesus Christ is not 
growing, it's dying. It is never static. It's never in one place. It is a dynamic thing. As in any relationship, if you are not putting yourself into a relationship, it's withering away. And the Lord calls us to relationship. My faith is either a burning fire in my bones or it's fizzling embers on the hearth. Which is it going to be? And furthermore, if, if I limit my closeness to the Lord, I'm denying myself the blessing that we're talking about here. The greatest blessing in the Lord is the Lord. It's not this. It's not church. Hey, this is a blessing. I love being with you all. It's not the worship. Yeah, I enjoy that too. The greatest blessing in the Lord is the Lord. It's Him. And so to, to stop short at all, and to try and protect ourselves and to hold back in the things that we can do, we're denying ourselves the greatest blessing. Verse 11, let's go on. The Lord, it says, you who fear the Lord, third group of people, Israel, house of Aaron, and number three, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. Help. The Hebrew word help. I need somebody help. Etzer is the word in the Hebrew, which wouldn't have worked for the Beatles very well. They needed a single syllable song. Help. Sorry, I just got the new Beatles. Well, it's not new, it's old, but it's new for me. I digress. The word help, it literally means, and check this out, it means one who assists, who comes alongside to supply what is needed. The Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word etzer is paraclete. It's the word Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper, parakletos that He may be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Why can't the world receive the Holy Spirit? Because the world is all about the work of the hands, not the work of the Spirit. And Jesus says, the world cannot receive Him, because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. And so the Lord is our help. The Lord also is our shield. The word shield in Hebrew is magen. And it doesn't speak of just a, a, a thing that you hold up in front of you. It speaks of active defense. Protective defense. A defender that goes before you and fights. The first time the word shield is used in Scripture is Genesis 15.1. Where the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. I'm your shield, Abraham. You see, the Lord doesn't give you a shield. The Lord is your shield. Which again brings us back to the necessity of a growing, developing relationship with Him because He's the shield. It's not something He hands off. It's not a verse that you can call to memory. It's not religiosity or legalism. It's the Lord who will shield you against the distress and challenges even of the coming year. He's the help. He's the shield. Not just for chosen Israel, not just for priestly Aaron, but for anyone who comes to him in holy fear. Now, can you imagine the people singing Psalm 115 in their houses in Babylon, singing, the Lord is our hope and our shield. All these idols are nothing, but God is everything. Or or can you imagine the the people with Jehoshaphat singing praises to God after the victory, the Lord is our hope and our shield. He goes before us. Can you see faith just welling up in the eyes of the children of Israel as Moses leads them out of idolatrous Egypt? The Lord is our hope. He's our help and our shield. Gang, trust the Lord. He is your help and your shield. He is. Spurgeon said this. He said the skeptic is loud in his unbelief. 
Let us be equally open in the avowal of our faith. You know the the vocal minority who are out there trying to put signs on buses saying God doesn't exist? You know, how about we put signs on buses that just say, trust the Lord? That would be awesome. I'll ride that bus. How about we are the ones who are vocal? We are the we got the truth, man. We walk in grace and truth. Why aren't we the most outspoken people in all the world with everything that we believe with the truth that we hold? Now listen, here comes the blessing. Verse 12. The Lord has been mindful of us. Which is a stunning statement. That the Lord is mindful. You could forget Him for months. Guess what? He is mindful of you. He knows where you are, what you're doing, what you're thinking. Oh, that's a little creepy. No, He cares desperately for you. And He is always thinking about you. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. You see the difference there? He's our help and our shield. He is also our blessing. It's His work. It's His hands. And it's not ours. Whether you're little or impressive, if you fear the Lord, if you trust Him, He will bless you. And I remind you again, Genesis 15.1, what God says is, I am your shield. He says, I am also your exceeding great reward. I'm your reward. I'm the reward for all of your faith. It's me, the Lord would say. Verse 14, May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. A blessing, I pray that for all of us for the new year. A new year's blessing on us. That the Lord would give increase. That He will bless us and our children. That you will be blessed of the Lord. And recognize your blessing comes from Him. Verse 16. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord. But the earth He has given to the sons of men. Now, listen. The earth has been given to the sons of men. That means we've been given a great gift. What are we going to do with it? Actually, the better question to ask is this. What did we do with it? The earth belongs to the sons of men. Okay, how did we handle that? God handed to Adam and Eve the title deed of planet earth in the garden. He said, gang is yours. Kids, take it and run with it. He said in his own words, Genesis 1.28, God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the ground. There you go, Adam and Eve. It's yours. My gift to you, planet earth. And what did they do with it? They handed that title deed to the devil. They handed it off. They trusted in him. They trusted in His words. And guess what? God came back to Adam and said, Okay, so guess what you're going to do? You're going to work by your hands. It's going to be the work of your hands. By the sweat of your brow. You're going to labor in the field. You're going to get thorns and thistles for it. And you're going to work, work, work. The work of man's hands. As opposed to the work of God's hands that He had given us. An amazing thing happened. That day idolatry sprung open in the world. That day, the work of man's hands became the focus of mankind. And that day is when we lost touch. But Jesus comes along, and He makes the way home. Jesus comes back and grabs hold of that title deed. And through His blood on the cross, He owns it now, gang. 
And it's wonderful, it's marvelous. You know, I'm going to read it to you really fast. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5. I could just paraphrase this, but you've got to see this if you haven't already. Ever since that fateful day in the garden when Adam and Eve handed over the title deed of planet Earth, when Adam and Eve fell to the work of man's hands, ever since that day, God's been wooing us back to the garden. God's been saying, come on back to paradise. Come back to innocence. Come back to wholeness and holiness and joy. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. John's writing, it says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back and sealed up with seven scrolls. What John is describing here, or seven seals, sorry. What John is describing here is a title deed. The word book in verse 1 is literally scroll. I saw him holding a scroll. And it's written on the inside, and it's written on the back, on the outside, and it's sealed with seven seals. Well, how do you know that that's a title deed? Gang, it's a title deed held in foreclosure. And Jewish people would understand this. Because Jewish law, which is very careful to protect the property owner, did this. If your house went into foreclosure, or if your land or property was about to be lost, they would take the title deed, roll it up, roll up the scroll, and write the debt on the outside. And then they would seal it with seven seals, giving you seven years to redeem the debt. It's a little more gracious than our system. When you lose your house, it's just gone. Not in Israel. You had seven years to reclaim the debt. Seven seals. And if you could pay back that debt in seven years, your property returned to you. It was yours again. The scroll in Revelation 5.1 is the title deed to planet Earth. But we became morally bankrupt. And sin foreclosed and we lost the farm. But read on. It says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. No one was worthy. For all the work of all the hands of men, there was nobody strong enough to do it. No one could make it happen. And John says, Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. John, why are you weeping? Because he realized all was lost. There's no salvation. We cannot get there. We were foreclosed on. We will never get it back. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Jesus grabs hold of the title deed. Jesus, by the work of His hands, and the nail prints there, grabs hold of the title deed and holds it right now. And I'll tell you, one of my greatest prayers for the new year is that we will see the buyback of planet Earth this year. That we'll be caught up. So that's the wonderful promise of Scripture, is the rapture of the church, that you'll be caught up. If you're in faith in Jesus Christ, when He calls, you're going home. We have not been destined for wrath but for salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, I think 9 or 19. It's in there. Look it up. But we're not destined for wrath. And when Jesus starts to pop those seals, the tribulation begins. Days of distress will be huge. You can read through it. Revelation 6, (coughs) excuse me, 6 through 19. We are on the verge of the buyback of planet Earth. 
The payment's been made, the lamb stands ready, and all he needs to do is start breaking the seal. Verse 17. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. The loud skeptic will be silenced. Those who call the whole thing foolish fantasy will not have a word to say. Anyone who puts their trust in the works of man's hands, in the work of our hands, is going to miss it. He says the dead do not praise the Lord. You know what? That's true physically. It's also true spiritually. The dead do not praise the Lord. This is why I've made such a big deal about worship at the bridge the last several months. Not just because we're in Psalms. But the reality is the dead don't praise the Lord. And there's an, an immediate connection between my hunger, my desire, my passion to worship and my relationship with Jesus Christ. The dead don't praise Him. It's those who are alive. Because worship nurtures and sustains life. And the more you worship, the more alive in Christ you are, which causes you to want to worship more. It's a dynamic and wonderful thing. As for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise the Lord or hallelujah. Gang, this contrast is a great way to begin this year because we're looking at the difference between the work of our hands and our accomplishments and our strength and our skills and our ability. And you can trust in that or you can trust in the work of His hands. But I'll tell you something. The kingdom, as Daniel saw it, Daniel chapter 2, verse 34 and 45, the kingdom is described as a stone cut without hands. It's not something of human strength or ingenuity. It's not something we can make happen. It's something God does. And it's trusting in the work of His hands. Hebrews 11.16 says, Of people of faith, they, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. That's where I want to be. In the city that He has prepared. Not in all the work that I've accomplished or done. Happy New Year. May it be blessed by the Lord. Father, You are so good. And you give us a stunning contrast, a definition, Father, of idolatry that I had never considered before. The work of my hands. Father, first off, this morning, I repent of the work of my hands, the things that I have done that I have thought would secure me. And I reject that, Father, only for your grace and your truth, for Jesus Christ. I turn to you, Lord, and say, whatever you have, whatever your will, Father, that's what I want to do. That's what we as a fellowship want to be about. The work of Your hands, Lord. And Your kingdom. And may we be a part of this. And simply acknowledging, Lord, Your greatness and Your glory. And may the blessing of this year be the realization of Jesus Christ in all of our lives at a deeper and more profound level than it's ever been. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.